I am interested in uh, improving my own decision making. I have been for years. I feel that even if I could improve it just incrementally over time, it would have a big effect. I'm also aware of uh, all these uh, biases that we have. Sometimes we think we're good decision makers and, and we forget with the, the areas that we're not. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where Twixmas isn't just the week between Christmas and New Year's. It's also Spanish for more Twix. Twixmas, right? Si, por favor. Ellos son muy buenos. Now, my Spanish accent is not fantastic, but, you know, en teas es importante hablar español. Me gusta practicarlo. So, nonetheless, I am your host, Jeff Maines. Well, I hope your holidays have been fantastic and are continuing that way. My wife and I spent it with our kids and family, and this week is all my wife's family. We have a house full now. It is great just spending time together playing games and doing fun stuff. So I hope you're enjoying some family time and downtime as well. Well, speaking of family, today is National Fruitcake Day, made popular back in the 40s and 50s this unofficial day celebrates the rock-hard, fruit-filled holiday cake. Now, I have to say, I'm not sure if anyone has actually ever eaten a fruitcake. Uh, if you have, reach out let me know and what that experience was like for you and maybe if you required any medical intervention afterwards. You know, I'm, I'm actually curious about that. Well, earlier this month, I mentioned some upcoming enhancements to the show. Drum roll, please. Well, I, I guess the little drummer boy is out on holiday as well. But the, the big announcement is that we are going to twice a week. That's it, twice a week. Like a Twix, two is better than one. So Tuesdays, we'll continue to release on Tuesday. Tuesdays will be SaaS founder interviews exclusively. And Thursdays, we're going to call the SaaS Fuel Expert Series. Thursdays will feature experts that help us in specific business areas like sales, marketing, lead generation, leadership, team building, uh, culture, and quite a bit more. So these are experts in those areas that we'll be talking to and help us build and grow our business in those. So I'm really excited about that. At the same time, the podcast is going live on video. All the previous episodes plus all future episodes will be available on YouTube and YouTube clips. So you can find all the info on sasfuel.com. You can subscribe today at sasfuel on YouTube, and I'll let you know when the channel goes live here in the next couple of weeks. So I'm really excited to get to bring more and more focused content to the SaaS community. Well, this week's episode is sponsored by FounderPath. If you want to scale up, you need capital to do it. And, you know, you can get a loan, which is expensive. You could raise and give up big chunks of equity for maybe a few bucks, or you could do what the smartest founders do, and that begins with FounderPath. You can get non-dilutive capital in 24 hours with no personal guarantee 
no crazy fees, and super generous payback times. This is a game changer for building and scaling a SaaS business. You know, it's exactly what SaaS founders need, and the process is super, super easy. We've negotiated some special perks as a SaaS Fuel listener. So visit our site at sasfuel.com. There's a special link right there on the page or in the main menu up top under resources that says get SaaS funding. So get the funding you need and keep your equity with FounderPath. In last week's episode, we talked with Angelo Coletta, founder and CEO of Zakiki, a platform to help brands build engaging customer experiences through customization and personalization. They do that using a combination of 2D, 3D, and augmented reality. Angelo and Zakiki are transforming the B2B buyer experience. And kind of the same way we give demos to our SaaS solutions, their SaaS platform creates immersive demos of real-world environments and objects. It's really pretty amazing. If you missed it, go back and check it out for sure. Today, we have a Twix pack of guests. Both are SaaS founders. And the first is an expert in decision science and the second in productivity and performance optimization. So our first founder we'll talk to today is Kurt Pickler, founder of Viewpoint AI, a SaaS tool that is taking decision science to a whole new level through behavioral economics. And when I first heard it, I asked the question, okay, what is that? And so it's really seeing the world through the lens of psychology and economics. And that helps us understand ourselves better and make better decisions. Better decisions equal better outcomes and ideally a better world from those decisions. You know, at its core, Viewpoint helps businesses get value out of their data and internal tribal knowledge without needing a boatload of data scientists. So without further ado, here is Kurt Pickler. Well, hey, Kurt, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thanks, Jeff. Great to see you today. Well, decision-making is a big part of your journey. So what is it that makes you so curious and interested about the way that we make decisions? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's all pervasive in everything humans do. I am interested in uh, improving my own decision-making. I have been for years. I feel that even if I could improve it just incrementally over time, it would have a big effect. I'm also aware of uh, all these uh, biases that we have. Sometimes we think we're good decision makers and, and we forget the, the areas that we're not because we don't want to remember them. And, you know, we have uh, other limitations, you know, understanding lots of criteria or points of data. I don't know. There's just lots to consider and there, there's like so much to learn in the area. I've been fascinated with it. And now, I'm part of a, a company that, you know, my co-founder has been working with this for years and uh, has, he has uh, developed a lot of um, bridges over these like human limitations and areas that you know, we're challenged with that uh, speed up the process. And there's, just, there's also a lot of value to, to create and uh, if we can improve decision making over time. Without a doubt. Yeah, I know that there are definitely some some bad decisions that I've made that I, I don't want to think about either, right? I think we probably all have those. So tell me a little bit about Viewpoint AI, how you came up with the, the idea and, and what that journey has been like. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, we call it Viewpoint because we capture people's viewpoints. You have one, I have one. If we're working with other people, 
uh, in, in a, on a decision team. Everyone has their viewpoint. You know, it's your perspective. And I, uh, maybe the, the thing that I'm most uh, driven by is this idea of being able to understand another person's viewpoint. Uh, because you see things differently. You might ask a question that I didn't think to ask. And that answer could be invaluable. And so Without a doubt. I, I want to capture that. And I don't think that we have a really good way of capturing that, you know, other questions or even including other people in decisions to even have them ask a question. And then what about the answer? So there's, there's, there's a bunch of challenges there, but that's why I love the idea of um, collaborating because you know, get more people in a group, someone's going to ask something that others didn't ask, right? So that's value. Then there's a bit of a diminishing return because if you get too many people, no one can hear others and uh, and then people have agendas and communication issues and biases and all these things that kind of like take away from this, being able to capture uh, potentially invaluable uh, perspectives from other people. It seems like that's kind of a lost art is listening to other people's perspectives and, uh, you know, taking that, that input from other viewpoints. I mean, how, is that a challenge that you're working to solve? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's primarily, you know, being able to capture subject matter expertise. Uh, or if you've been working in a job for 10, 20, 30 years, your decision making is, has, has, has developed, it developed to the point of, you know, being, expert and we call that corporate knowledge or tribal wisdom or institutional knowledge right it's like when someday that person's gonna retire or leave and they're gonna take their brain with them <laughs> and so we have a tool to capture that and uh, there's a lot of value in being able to capture that um, knowledge that wisdom and then being able to offer it to make it available to others so that's what we're. That's what our company's all about: it's capturing that institutional knowledge and making it available to others, so they can make better decisions, and we can even learn from other perspectives. And you know, there's being able to capture uh, this insight. You know, question someone else, you asking another question. I want to be able to capture that efficiently, um, but I not just yours. I want like ten thousand different people's insights. I want I want to be able to capture insight at scale. You know, you, you we might be able to go out for lunch and, you know, talk about a, a certain thing. I could uh, get your understanding of something. And then the next day, someone else. The next day, someone else. But that's, I don't know how, we don't have time to, you know, take go for coffee meetings or lunches <laughs> with everyone want to like capture some knowledge from right right so if we can create we have a, a brain trust we give people a brain trust so they can capture their own uh or have their own repository of knowledge that's really interesting and they can build on top of that and then and then when you have that there's so many uh ai tools to uh, enhance the value of this because now you have past decisions that you can find correlations uh around and you know, what works, what didn't work, what were the factors that were, you know, essential to certain outcomes and 
and you know, finding out about that, then there's a whole world of, that we can uh, access uh, because we're capturing new data. I don't know anywhere else that's capturing this kind of data. I've looked, I know people are trying to, but being able to capture this kind of perspective and then have it understood and then have, it, have people learn, uh, have the system learn to even identify areas of risks or uh, maybe things that have been overlooked, um, maybe give you a perspective of, of uh, some areas of risk or completion or maybe, you know, uh, even competency. <laughs> so. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, conceptually, it's great to think about being able to capture all of that knowledge. And just like you said, you, you could you know, maybe do that if you had unlimited time and go have meetings, one-on-one -on -one meetings with everybody. And then, but you have the repository. The second part of that is getting the data out. How do you take it out and how do you use it? So are you using AI? Is that where that comes in to, to use the data to make decisions? The AI doesn't make decisions in this case. Uh, we use it to augment humans. We, nice. Philosophical point of view is like humans are the best decision makers because they do something uh, machines don't do very well. What's that? And that's understanding shifting context and values. And when, you know, the weather or the environment or the political situation changes or the price of steel changes, like, do you still want to do this? So, you know, humans understand that and so they're the best decision makers but we don't do some things that machines do better and that is understand thousands or billions of data points uh, and also identify patterns in those and we don't we have limitations in that. so human uh, machines can do that better but if machines can work with humans um, efficiently uh, machines can learn what could be important to the human and offer that as a perspective. And then we have a human in the loop type of uh, scenario where uh, human we can uh, this is what the decision looks like, and the machine can show the human or the decision team. And then there's a, a the decision team could uh, um, make refinements. And so, hey, this is right here, and it's not that it's not that optimal here. And then the machine kind of brings back another perspective. When the human can see that, they can then, oh yes, uh, this is right. Oh, let's feedback loop, right? Coming back to them so they can see what it looks like. Oh, not quite over here. So it's it's very iterative, and uh, we can refine. Human, we want to see what the decision looks like. Because when we, because sometimes we don't, if we go down a decision process, sometimes the question doesn't come to our mind to ask until we're down down the road, right? So it happens it, a lot. So we have a way of uh, shortening this cycle so that we can ask, be able to ask the questions that we need to ask you know, sooner, and we're, we can capture that as a process and then you know add refinement to it. That's a really interesting use of technology. So it's not replacing human decision making, but it's really augmenting and, and amplifying you know, skills that, that the machine has, uh, being able to process lots of data points quickly, and also just the, the human element of decision making. Yeah. We, we can do things so quickly and process so much information. 
But I think that that's a really interesting insight is asking a question earlier in the process leads to a much better or different outcome. And it's like, you know, lots of times we say, well, if I'd only known back then, yeah, and maybe we would have if we asked the right question. And something we can template these questions, right? Because you, you know, they've all been thought of before. If you're hiring someone, you, you know the questions asked. Or if you're investing in the company, there's a whole list of questions asked. Or, you know, we can now load them in and now we can, you know, work with that to, you know, build it out even further. Yeah, that's really interesting. Are there specific decisions or, or use cases that you've seen have been really successful? Well, uh, we're, we're focusing right now on uh, investment decisions, HR recruitment and procurement and, you know, supply chain related uh, areas. So because they're, they're all very easy entrance points uh, to w- w- all the high value decisions that we could affect. So because they're all structured similarly. Uh, if we're investing into companies, there'd be a list of companies, right? And if we're uh, hiring people, there'd be a list of people that have applied for a certain position. And if we're, if we're procurement related, there'd be a list of vendors. There's always a criteria that we're looking at. Product market fit, management team, sensibility uh, of the technology or product or the big market, or, you know, those, these are investment related criteria. And if we're, Hiring people, it'd be your work experience. It would be your uh, proficiency and whatever you're looking for. for those, you know, so that, and if we're, uh, if it's procurement related, there's uh, can you deliver on time? Is it up to a certain level of quality? And, you know, the, this is you know high level, but there'd be like more granular questions here that you'd be addressing. So we don't care what criteria you have as long as you have criteria, right? And it doesn't matter what set of choices you're looking at, as long as you have some choices, right? And then there's the management team, or not management, the, the, the decision team. So where these intersect, that's where the decision is, and, and we have to kind of uh, jump around and change uh, some criteria and see what that looks like. And, and uh, um, so all these uh, decision areas are easy starting points. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you have knowledge that's captured in one organization, does that translate to other organizations? Does that help? You know, you, you build it in one company. Can another company use that to kind of jumpstart their knowledge base or their decision process? Uh, yes, it's possible. But we built our, our platform in a way that, um, I'll explain it like this. Uh, the thing that we're kind of bringing that's, that's really novel to the world that I haven't seen is a, a, a marketplace for decision IP. So it's how you create, how you make a decision, how I make a decision, how we make a decision together. We can capture that and template it and actually have it in an application that's easy to use. So um, a marketplace would be uh, this IP that we've created. We can now put on a marketplace available for other people to, to buy. And if they want to make a, a related decision, they could be, oh, this much money, uh, it gets me 20, 30, 40, or 50% down the road. So it's now saving a lot of time because we've already thought through the process. Uh, another way would be for a company, large company, to keep it for themselves because it, it's their IP. 
it's their corporate knowledge, it's their um, you know their their value that they're that they want to keep inside the organization. They want to keep experts and the decision making ability of experts long after experts leave, like maybe ten years from now. They want to they want to be able to see decisions that someone has made that they've left. So and then we can um, you know capture that and build that resource bigger and and that and it can stay in the company long after people leave it's uh, it's uh, you know that's one of the biggest problems right now is being able to retain that knowledge that happens a lot of it, especially over the last few years so many people have, have left companies and changed jobs and just that the knowledge is gone yeah that uh, the travel knowledge is somewhere else some of the companies I talked to they, they gave uh, at the beginning of COVID, they gave uh, some of their senior people um, a package to take if they if they wanted to leave early. There was uncertainty in the environment, so uh, you guys need to leave. We we don't know what's happening in here, right? But now they're they they feel this pain so much more because it's really hard to execute on some on high level uh, on very advanced level delivery of, of their product when they don't have experts in the company they have to try to bring people back find it somewhere else um, and that's a very costly thing to do and then right now we can provide a tool to capture what we have and so we can uh, make this uh, at least not a significant problem down the road, but we can also bring in other experts. So not only are we, you know, saving one person, but like multiple people, and then how they interact together. There's added value there. Yeah, having the the wisdom and insights from multiple people is uh, super important. Mm -hmm. So, what does insight mean to you? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I mentioned briefly when you ask a question that I didn't think to ask, that answer. That's how I define insight. And that's the thing that I'm really interested in capturing uh, at scale. I want, I, want, I want not 10, I want, I want thousands of those. I want the ability to capture that. And then I want to be able to see just what's important for whatever I'm working on. So that's one of the other problems, not only the, the, the loss of, cap, of corporate knowledge, but the overwhelming amount of data that comes flying at us. Humans can't handle that, and they end up putting the data aside, and then they kind of go with their gut or something, right? The, the data seems to be less a part of the end decision at the end. Being able to process data, get just what is needed faster, and in context, there's a lot of value there. So the, I guess the three problems that we address are like loss of corporate knowledge, the overwhelming amount of data that's flying at us, and teams, uh, large team decision making is really inefficient. And so these things are all related to decision making, and the, uh, which is what we're tackling. Yeah, definitely the the inefficiency of large group decisions. I mean, look at any government. It doesn't matter what country. Yeah. Not I mean, state, province, national, it doesn't matter. It's just that the whole process is uh, is pretty convoluted. So it's really interesting thinking about doing that faster and evaluating data, because I think you're right. We, we make decisions based on either gut feel 
or you know, we have so much data that we just focus in on small pieces of it. And maybe it's the right part, maybe it has nothing to do with the decision, but how does the technology help us do that, kind of separate the, the signal from the noise? Uh, this, this is also related to um, you know, how we uh, capture a subject of understanding or like with this corporate knowledge, right? One of the areas, because this is, you know, how do we take away the noise? You know, what's really important? So if the, we have a list of criteria, you, me, and some friends are pooling some money and going to buy uh, investment property in this area. Right. All right, let's do it. There's a bunch of choices because of whatever's available. I would look at uh, some criteria myself and you would for yourself and other people uh, who are working on this with. with. So for myself, what's important is uh, having a good view. All right, go down the list of importance of being close to restaurants and coffee shops, go down the list, close to parks, go down the list. Price is a consideration, of course, it's in there somewhere down the list, eventually you're going to get to uh, you know, color. It's it's a consideration, but it's kind of low on the list because if I needed to, I can paint it, right? So sure. humans, we always think in terms of uh, ranking or, you know, or order of importance of criteria. Yes. And so now I would want to kind of look at this myself. I mean, humans are, are bad at maybe assigning a value to each of these things. We know that some yes. things are important than others, but like some things are just like we, we, it's hard to capture a number. So we have a way of capturing that numerically so that humans don't have to. So just drag it to the top of the list or the middle of the list. And now, now we've ha captured a rank order. We can now take that and ping the MLS database and like find in rank order what is more important, less important. I mean, uh, what's a, a first choice or second choice or third choice? Because there's attributes for all of those things, right? right. So now we have the way of looking at well, what if we uh, move uh, some crate, some element like being close to the, the parks, and, you know, move up the list of imports. Well, that would rearrange the our choices, so we can now see what our choices look like. And uh, and then we could go to our choices and, be, you know, there's something, yeah, that I like it, but there's something about number six. I, I want to, you know, that, let's put that to the top. Let's see what that looks, looks like. And now our criteria would, would change and be like, wow, I like this, but our criteria, it looks like this. So we have conflict in, with what we think we want and what we actually choose, Right. You can look at it happens a lot. You can look at dating sites, right? You say we want <laughs> right. uh, this profile, and then there we end up choosing this, or we tell our friends what we want, and then what well, we end up dating this. I know, like there. So we're working out what we want first, and if we can see it, and uh, we can get a better understanding and more certainty in ourselves what we want. Now, when we do that for ourselves, now we can integrate how you do it and the other people on your decision team are, are bringing our viewpoints together, right? And so some things we might all have in common. And then if we're investing into real estate, maybe we all like you, right? right. It's really high. So, you know, we, that's a, like a teaching tool to um, 
and uh, to, to the machines because it's now understanding what we collectively want. And then there's some aspects that we don't really want uh, or we're not really aligned on. Maybe it's price. If you could, someone could relax a constraint, like maybe if you could uh, relax your constraint around money, uh, increase it ten, your budget ten grand or something like that. Well, then it could put into range a decision that we could all be aligned with, right? Sure. So understanding these trade-offs, uh, we have a tool for that. But you know, we we we're getting clear in ourselves what is more important, and we're capturing that. I think that was your question. It's like what is right. more important, and we have to figure it out ourselves. And we have a tool that helps us figure it out very efficiently, and then also bring that together with our decision team. And we now have captured a process. Because we capture the process, we can continually refine it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Kurt about what he wants to create, behavioral economics, and how we can democratize AI to take advantage and get value from our own data. Right after this. Today's episode is sponsored by Small Fish Big Pond, building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. Why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? What do exceptional SaaS companies do that mediocre companies don't? What can SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful business lessons guaranteed to change the way you view your business and includes hands-on exercises and growth tools to get lightning-fast results. Get your copy today at smallfishbigpond.com and use the code SASFUEL to unlock special bonus content. Welcome back to SaaS Fuel. My guest today is Kurt Pickler, co-founder and CEO of Viewpoint AI. So Kurt, tell me a little bit more about what you want to create. What is your bigger vision with Viewpoint AI and how do you see it impacting the world? Well, I think that if uh, we can understand one another better, we can, uh, uh, we'll, we'll be able to have a broadened perspective and we'll be able to make better decisions. We can make better decisions. I think the world has got to be a better place. So um, if we can understand ourselves better and why we're making the decisions we are, that is has huge amount of value. Uh, you know, we'll, we make better decisions in our companies. You know, do we include the environment and the the birds <laughs> or you know like what are, the, what are we not considering if we have the ability to include more people in it efficiently they can like identify hey these things are important they're missed at least if we miss them once can we have a, a increased chances of not missing it the next time and that makes a lot of sense being able to take advantage of that that knowledge base that's out there that community knowledge that tribal knowledge that it, that is even outside of our own organizations mm -hmm. so that it really moves us much further down the road faster in making decisions yeah it seems like there's a lot of psychology mixed in with with business I mean, how do you see that play you know psychology and economics um, you know behavior science and, and economics how does that intersect in what you do I've always been, well, for, for a number of years, I've been interested in um, our, our limitations, my own limitations first. The, you know, I'm, I'm limited by how I see something. And, uh, Me too. Yeah. If I can get a better understanding of what is uh, skewing my view of how I see life, hopefully I can see better, clearly, more clear, and uh, that 
probably help me make better decisions. <laughs> this whole area of uh, behavioral economics, I'm, I'm, I've been fascinated by, and uh, I can see myself in it, and I, I have, um, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, the confirmation bias is like a really common one. You know, you only look for what you, you only find what you're looking for. Yeah, you know, in short, right? The, or uh, the, the salient effect. You know, you, we we get uh, kind of uh, we get uh, our bias. We, we get biased by a, the this event that happened, and we think it's because of that. But there's really so many other things that we may not have thought to ask and or consider because we're blinded by the thing that was louder or the person who talked the loudest. You know, did that that person really have the, the insight often it's sometimes the person that is the quietest right and, <laughs> right you know that's true there's lots of limitations that we're that, that take away from our ability to see life clearly and that's this world of behavioral economics and you know if we have a way of understanding others better uh, we can we might not agree with them but we can at least appreciate where they came from, and and that's what I value, and because uh, and because then we can uh, if, we're, if we're appreciating where they come from, it's, and it's like what what was your thought process? I can respect your thought process. Uh, uh, if if you don't have a thought process, I don't I don't know I might I, I can't appreciate that right. If you didn't, if, if you're, if you include more in your rationale, I can appreciate that, whether I agree with you or not, and uh, and, I, and I respect that. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the study of, of behavioral economics. Uh, you know, it's just my my own interest for years, and and it has directly it's directly related to decision making. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we see that even in like ads that were served. Yeah, big data is using all the data points about us to to market to us, and and hoping maybe to drive that purchase decision, and and influence us that way. So I mean, how do you see people being able to use their data, you know, kind of what you say, democratize AI, and use their data for their own benefit? Well, uh, there's a lot of companies now that are collecting a lot of data and they don't know how to use it. They're just collecting it because they know it has value. And uh, they don't have the tools or even the time to know what to do with it or learn what to do with it. And they might uh, hire a company, they might hire some data scientists, <laughs> right? So like, hey, there's some value here. And so you know, we have a, a way of um, being able to make all the data science tools available for people, whether you're uh, an individual, maybe you're a realtor, or, um, or maybe you're a small business, or medium-sized or, or large business, <laughs> right? There's, yeah. there's like a number of tools that you might be able to get access to that uh, in the AI world. Right, because there's a whole bunch of these tools, and but there's limitations and largely cost. So if, if cost, if we can take cost away 
from it. And you can get access to you know these tools for you know small amount per month. <laughs> right? You can you can start to see your own value and learn how you can get uh, extract that for your own purposes. So if we're looking at uh, AI and machine learning and uh, all these inputs are going in, do, do machines, is, is there a singularity? Do machines start to make those decisions or always come to the same conclusion? Or, you know, because we've got all this knowledge, out, if everybody's looking at the same thing, do we have the same outcomes all the time? I don't think that uh, it would come to that because from where how we're approaching it, actually, is is that uh, humans will always be the and are the best decision maker, and machines, I don't think, are good decision makers. They can understand data. They can understand correlations in data. They can find patterns in that. They can, but humans understand what say, what when the environment changes, what you need to do. And it's really hard to teach that to a machine because there's so many what ifs that happen. And humans can make a decision based on um, what, uh, uh, even if they haven't had that experience again, because they're they're coming from a, their value. You know, there, there's some value that's that's driving them. Maybe it's uh, oh, when this happens, uh, do you? pollute the river or not well if your value is uh you know the data may say sure dump it all in there yeah because yeah. it's cheap right exactly but the, the human goes no that's not a good idea uh, well hopefully anyway <laughs> right 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 but that makes a lot of sense that uh you know there, there's a lot more than data and ultimately it's the, the human decision i think that's maybe you know the reason that we don't have you know robots as fighter pilots is because there's there's so many decisions in there that happen, and some of that is instinct, some of it is feel, some of it is, is experience, and it's not something that you can just capture just from raw data. So it's really those two things together. Uh, you know, it's not a pilot sitting in a plane with nothing. You got instruments, you've got lots and lots of data and inputs, but uh, you still have somebody that is actually flying that aircraft and, and doing it very very well and making those decisions in the moment. There, there's a lot of AI tools out there, uh, not the ones that we uh, focus on, but they, you know, you can have drones fly and not crash and do specific things. Right. You can train it to do things like that because it's like a very clear objective. The yes. whole world of, of AI that uh, we're, we're, we're focusing on, that's a, a not, not very clear objective. Right? So, Things change, which like things change. What do you do? Yeah, that's that's our focus. Is uh, areas that are, are not clear. If you want to drive a, a car from here to here, you know, and not crash into anything, you can eventually collect enough data to do to do that. That's a big data problem. But uh, you know, uh, until there's highway construction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So what is the future of AI machine learning? Uh, how, where do you see it going as an industry? You know, where do you see it being used in the market? There are so many opportunities still untapped in this area. You know, there's some, uh, you know, negative applications of it uh, or, or possible negative applications to it. 
there's 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 many things that can add value to the world i think uh and you know that's where we're focused is like understanding other people's perspective it's kind of like traveling you know when you're young you travel you understand what it's like to have challenges <laughs> right because you can learn the sure. experience or 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 you can see other people and how they live and then you can appreciate them and you can you know learn from them you, you take this knowledge and you come back into your life right and you apply it in the rest of your life this is you know being able to capture perspective is is i think enormously valuable and whatever can help us in in understanding other people and how they live what's important to them uh you know it's just enormously valuable that has got to help us you know because we can then consider and get even it can help us even become more creative in in whatever we're doing and maybe in, in be innovative and invent other things as well just because you know it triggers a thought that you had when someone you know another culture did something like love that idea oh, that's great well, where can people learn more about you and about viewpoint ai online our website is is viewpoint.ai uh, so it's easy to remember nice. and so um yeah please come there and and uh going to be launching a uh, marketplace for uh, decision IP where you know, even you could come and like template a decision of, or find templates from other people that have uh, in, invented a thought process or, or captured a thought process that you know you could just capture and that's a starting point right so there's lots of tools that that uh, can help in the decision making process uh, right right on our website so and so is the marketplace it, will it have ip already in it or is that something that is is being developed over time or will it launch with content uh well we need to launch it with some content a starting place and then and then the more people that uh, use it uh, they can you know offer for sale some process that they if we're investors and we've developed a way to make successful investments in early stage tech companies, right? We can capture that and we can make it available and now we can monetize that process, that that that, that uh, IP that we only before became in our heads for the most part. Great. Well, it's been a great time talking with you today, Kurt. And uh, I wish you well and much success in launching the marketplace. And uh, everybody go check out viewpoint.ai. Well, big thanks to Kurt Pickler, our first guest. He is the CEO of Viewpoint AI. Now, our second expert this week and founder is Bulat Khalib, or Bulat K. He is founder of the health app Predict and also a productivity expert. But starting out as a consultant for Deloitte, he left the institutional to embrace the entrepreneurial and create Predict, an app that combines health data with machine learning to optimize performance and scheduling. He's also the author and editor of an upcoming book about bootstrapping SaaS success stories called SaaS Mafia. Welcome to the show, Bulat. Well, hey, Bulat, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hi, Jeff. My pleasure. Well, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So I will start from what I do now and delve deeper into my story and we can stop and discuss like if you want. Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, I'm currently serving startup as a mentor and fractional COO slash CBDO. I always amazed by entrepreneurs, spe specifically in tech sector in SaaS. And what they do to change this world for better is fantastic. And I always like love what they do. Every time I meet someone. Me too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like every time I meet someone, I think, wow, is that possible? Really? Like founders, they never stop amazing me and never stop surprising me. For example, last time, last week, I met someone who is building a SaaS a platform for negotiations. Like it's a, it's supposed to be a game where you can negotiate everything really, like price for rent, uh, price for your house, price for some deal, price for your car, and etc. And what he does, nice. yeah, he helps to decrease this level of stress while you negotiating face to face. It's always stressful. It's always like you know hard. And when you negotiate in text and on the web page, it's much easier. So it's really amazing thing. And also he, he based this product based on his uh, 15 years experience of coaching, um, negotiation coaching. So amazing product. So your time at Deloitte, you spent some time working on blockchain. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, sure. So prior to starting my MBA, I was lucky to work at Deloitte. And we, I, I, I worked in an amazing team of people who really cared about sustainability and sustainable growth. And my part was I, I was building an ecosystem of enterprise blockchain in the CIS region. And we really talked about different things and helped our clients. We consulted and advised our clients on different topics such as digitalization, uh, digitalization with blockchain and economics, tokenization, sustainability, CSR, ESG, and many other important aspects. It's also interesting that two years before the NFT hype, we actually selling this concept to art galleries and art dealers. Interesting. Yeah, the idea was to create an um, NFT platform where uh, all NFTs linked to real-world art, such as painting, statues, and other objects, they are linked and they are being stored and tracked on this platform so that you can really know the history of any art object. And the problem we tried to address was that the art market isn't, you know, always pure and, like, clear. Right. And there are some, yeah, there are some shady um, deals. There are replicas and fake arts and etc. So blockchain has the potential to address, to solve this problem by storing the history of any art. And it's like a passport for an art object. Surprisingly, not all art collectors and all, not all art dealers want to be listed there because for some of them, prefer they some of them prefer anonymity and there are a variety of reasons behind that but it was really interesting thing and we also helped with many we also helped many companies to build their supply chains using blockchain and understanding how blockchain can be beneficial in their supply chains and blockchain platforms 
So what do you think the future of blockchain is? How, do, how will we see it used in the marketplace going forward? Mm, there are a couple of blockchains, right? I mean, there are a couple of topics around blockchain. Do you mean blockchain for enterprise solutions? Or do you mean open blockchains? Or do you mean like cryptocurrencies or central issued um, crypto tokens? What? What, what is the question? I, I think all of those are relevant. I mean, thinking about how we could use it in enterprise, but crypto is certainly you know, very much in the news, NFTs, the same kind of thing. So th there's a lot of different ways to do that. So how do you see it being used in, in you know, any or all of those areas? Sure. So for the enterprise blockchain, it's already in use. And many companies like Walmart, for example, they they incorporated blockchain for into their supply chains. So you can really they can really, you know, trace those projects moving around the supply chain. And many other companies with huge supply chains already did that. So basically, blockchain isn't uh, something, you know, marketable, like it's not marketing tool. It's really a tool that helps you to sort out your supply chain and have this um traceability and visibility across it. If we are talking about uh, public blockchains like blockchain, uh, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, first of all, Bitcoin is, isn't like, um, it's L1 blockchain, right? It doesn't have any other application except for sending and receiving Bitcoins. But Ethereum is a kind of different um, beast because you can create decentralized applications based on Ethereum. So you can really create SaaS or uh, marketplaces or, or many other, uh, you know, uh, applications based on this blockchain. So there are, I think, many, uh, the question was what the future, the future of blockchain. Yeah, the future. Yeah. So these kind of blockchains like Ethereum, they're really applicable for the future because you can create variety of applications not um, uh, managed by third parties but really decentralized applications and I think that's very good thing for for the future of of people but there are also cryptocurrencies and central bank issued cryptocurrencies which is you know different topic because CBdc's for example, they could be very good for our future and they can be very bad for our future, depending on who issues and who does what with them. Cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, it's a decentralized thing. And I'm huge, huge fan of this uh, thing of the decentralized currencies. In addition to mentoring and uh, working with startups, I also work on my own SaaS startup. It's a productivity tool called Predict. Our mission is to assist people who use calendars to um, to schedule key activities at the right and the appropriate times. So it could be a client meeting, it could be a family gathering, anything really. It assists you to determine the best time for your activity and to schedule this activity to this time. And we use machine learning. We analyze uh, sleep data, health data, and also we are able to predict your performance peaks and dips throughout the day. So you can really schedule activities like uh, at the right time. And also I'm working on, um, on a book. I'm working with uh, 28 bootstrapping founders and they share learnings and insights 
throughout the journey. And I write about that in this book for bootstrapped entrepreneurs. That's great. So 28 founders are writing this book together, kind of an intro guide to, to building a SaaS company. Not really. How it works, I interview these uh, 28 entrepreneurs. Ah, okay. And I include, yeah, I include these interviews into the book. The first half of the book will be like an intro guide, as you said, how to build your SaaS, how to validate your idea, how to validate your value proposition, how to find your idea, like really basic stuff. But also things about building in public, about creating your uh, social presence, like uh, online presence. And then there will be uh, 28 uh, lessons, 28 insights from these 28 founders. And we cover everything from $500 to 50K, really. The most challenging part, I think. Nice. Yes, that is definitely challenging. So have you always been entrepreneurial? Or how did you get to, to starting you know, the, the company now? Yeah, so I started it last year. Uh, while I was studying at Warwick Business School, it's, uh, it was an MBA program for me with an entrepreneurial focus. It was an exciting time, year of the year of, uh, you know, full of uh, learning, full of new experiences. And I met amazing people around um, that time and started this venture, really. And it's based on my own pain. You know, I'm scratching my own itch. Because before this MBA program, I worked at Deloitte and I scheduled a lot. I scheduled lots of meetings. So there were times when I scheduled something, you know, very important, like K meeting with a K client, uh, working on a K project. Everything was K. But I scheduled to the time when my brain just didn't want to work. Like I had to push myself to, you know, to perform during the meeting, focus on stuff. Other times I scheduled something not very important, like, you know, just meeting with my team to discuss some not very important stuff. But my brain did perform really well, like it was, you know, at the top. And I started searching this topic. How can I match these two things, like my activities and performance of my brain? And it turned out it's quite easy. So... I realized that I can use machine learning to predict these top performance slots. That's really interesting. So the, the goal then is scheduling meetings and an important task uh, when you're at your most productive, you're in a peak state and, uh, and less important things or, or gap time when you're, you're not. Yeah. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine you're a sales director, right? And you like um, to run at 8 a.m. in the morning, right before your work. So mm -hmm. by reading your health data, your sleep data, uh, Predict now helps you to manage your schedule. And it knows that uh, if you run at 2 p.m. instead of 8 a.m., your performance throughout this run will be much higher and you will improve much faster. You're, you will gain more energy. And it also knows that at 9 a.m. you have a client meeting with key client. It's a very important meeting. And predict, it's, it's our vision. Predict will tell you, hey, don't run at 8 a.m. because it's not very suitable time for you. And you also will have a drop in energy and focus at 9 a.m. Instead of that, just let me schedule this run to 2.30 p.m. where you have free time. And you won't have, you won't experience this drop in energy and uh, focus during your client meeting. 
but this run will help you to prepare for the next client meeting, which is 3.30 p.m. So it's kind of, you know, Jarvis That's for really Iron interesting. Man. Yeah, <laughs> Jarvis for Iron Man. I like that. So how do you collect that data? I mean, how do you know when somebody's in a peak state or going to be at their, their best versus maybe a little bit of a lull during the day? That's a good question. We collect this data through Apple Health. Apparently, we work with iPhones at the moment. But this really could be anything that collects data from fitness trackers. And you can use anything really like uh, Fitbit, uh, Xiaomi, uh, even Whoop. Everything that collects data about your heart rate, about your sleep. That could be a source of data for us. Interesting. So do you actually make the, the devices as well? Or are you connecting, collecting that data from existing devices that people already have? No, no, no. We're collecting this data from existing devices. That's smart. And I don't, yeah, I don't think that creating, building these variables and, you know, hard stuff will be viable for us. For, for us. So we focus on, on the application, mobile application. So do you have integrations with health apps that are, are collecting that and then pulling the information from there? Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. I guess currently it, it tells you when to schedule things, but then the, the next feature is where it's going to suggest how to adjust your schedule to meet those high impact or, or the important appointments that you already have, things that can't move. Is yeah, right? yeah. So you either adjust your schedule or you adjust your, your life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we want to help people to find the best time for everything. Like if you have client meeting or any, you know, important meeting with team, I don't know, you just like say, hey, could you put this important meeting to Thursday and predict knows your uh, performance peaks and dips for Thursday. If it's important meeting, if this meeting is important, it will put this meeting to your high performance slot. If this is not very important meeting, it will put it or it's, you know, like uh, um, refueling or relaxation time. It will put this meeting this time to, to the time when your brain is not performing. It's not at, the, at, at its peak. <laughs> so you really want to help with that thing. So how do you compete with uh, the fitness apps that are out there already? Or do you compete or is it more complementary to what, what the data that they're collecting or how people are using them? Yeah, we, not, we don't really compete with the fitness trackers and any wearables, but we do compete with companies like Whoop and Aura. They are very huge brands and they have millions of funding. We don't have this funding and I think we just focus on the niche market and we address the need the needs of this niche market we obviously won't be able to compete on marketing budgets and etc with these brands so our chances is really to go niche and to address very specific needs so is that really the the focus then of of how you you compete with the the bigger companies is, is go small and and really focus in and know that market well yeah exactly i mean how bootstrapping companies they work they choose very specific niche that is not huge, right? Because if you are funded by like with millions and you have these, uh, you know, budget, big budgets, you really need to go big. You really need to choose markets with billion dollars of uh, like opportunities. But if you don't have these fundings and these budgets, you opt for a smaller niches 
where you just can, you know, swim without any sharks and without, uh, relatively without competition, at least from big brands. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So what kind of productivity tips do you have? You know, what can we do as entrepreneurs to, to make our lives more productive? <laughs> Interesting question. Thank you. So, I mean, if that's long-term tips about productivity, right? The, the most important thing is just sleep longer and better. And the reason I'm saying that because we need to sleep between seven and a half hours to nine hours, right? And we need to sleep our sleep cycles. They are like uh, 90 minutes long. So everyone needs to have at least five of these sleep cycles, which means 7.5 hours. Okay. Some people need, need about uh, six uh, cycles. So it's nine hours. That's exactly why we are suggested to, to sleep between seven and nine hours. And people think, and I was one of these people, that you can cut your sleep to be more productive, to have more time for, for your daily life, right? But then I realized how unproductive I was when I did that. And I stopped cutting these, um, you know, sleep hours and my productivity, like, increased by, I don't know, like 30, 40%, maybe 50. So the real uh, long-term suggestion is don't um, sleep what you need. Find out what you need and sleep. Uh, another long-term suggestion would be, or productivity tip, if you can uh, include walking in the sunlight the first thing in the morning. By doing so, you will uh, influence your hormone system and it will know when to start being productive. I have many tips, but if you, if you ask some particular stuff, like, you know, how to prepare to, 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 to the meeting. <laughs> what about a, a short term? So let's say, you know, I've got a meeting coming up in, you know, an hour or two hours that's super important, maybe a big client. Uh, what can I do to, to prepare for that and really make sure that I'm in a, a peak state and perform well? Yeah, sure. So if you have a meeting in, say, 10, 15 minutes, just go to a quiet room, close your eyes and begin counting your exhales. That's very simple exercise. Mm. You don't have to do anything except listen to your breath, feel how the air comes and goes and just count. Do this for like really eight, nine minutes and you'll be much more focused and your brain will be much clearer and you'll perform better during the next hour or hour and a half. And also switching helps to get to focus. For example, if you work on one project, you can just switch to another if your brain start losing your you know, productivity and focus. I really like these two techniques to um, stay sharp and focused throughout the day. And when it comes I like to meetings. Yeah, so just switching from one task to uh, another, kind of re-engage, doing something different. Yeah, if you feel like you can't work, your brain resists to do something now, just stand up, walk for 30 seconds and start start working on something else. If the brain's still resistant, go for a 30-minute walk with no digital, like really forget your smartphone, iPad and laptop and just head to a nearest park. After 30 minutes, you'll be much more focused and much more productive. Yeah, a lot of times people don't think about taking breaks or they think that uh, taking a break will slow them down, but that's actually one of the ways that, that we recharge, refocus. 
Yeah, exactly. Because the optic nerves in your eyes, they senses this light, right? And even if there is a cloud cover, and if you walk in a large environment, uh, it will help you to process more, in, like it will help you to produce more hormones to stay alert. And also your brain has to process more information compared to if you just sit in front of your laptop. So it really has to start working and it really like pushes your brain to be productive. And when you return from, and especially from, you know, fresh air, it will help you to generate more, ide more ideas, uh, to be more productive, more focused, and so on. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Bulat about the top lessons that he's learned in writing the book about bootstrapping SaaS entrepreneurs and advice that he would give on rapidly scaling a company after this. Feeling stuck? Hit a growth ceiling? Break free and get growth moving with Champion Leadership Group. Our team of SaaS growth experts works with you to quickly identify and solve 53 root causes for stalled revenue growth. And then we keep revenue soaring with 268 powerful SaaS-specific growth strategies. Many cost nothing and can be implemented in a day. Use them to blow through growth ceilings and keep revenue rocking. Best of all, you never have to walk alone. Our group of mentors and fellow SaaS founders is here to support you on your SaaS-building entrepreneurial journey. Get free SaaS growth tools, including your own custom growth game plan at championleadership.com. Welcome back to SaaS Fuel. My guest today is Bulat Khalif, CEO and co-founder of Predict and author of Bootstrap Mafia, 28 bootstrapping SaaS founders providing lessons. And through that process, Bulat, what are the greatest lessons that you've learned about building a SaaS company from these other founders? Wow, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, I think that I mean, first of all, there are lots of insights and learnings, right? But I think the most important part that resonates with me is that you don't need to start building your SaaS, your application, your whatever, whatever business you have, before you really create your um, market, you validate your market, and you validate your value proposition and your idea. So basically how I started my few companies like a few startups and also how people usually think about how to start a SaaS, right? They think that you need to start building an application, start, you know, coding, start to solving problem. What I learned from these uh, 28 founders, first of all, it's best if you start building in public and if you start building your online audience in parallel or even before you start building your product. The second thing is, is to validate your um, idea and value proposition, basically to speak with people about what you think will, you know, will be valuable and will be uh, successful. So basically just invite people and interview them or speak about their problems and find out if they are willing to pay for your solution. And you do that before you start coding. If you did these two things, your chances are just skyrocketed. Because what, like usually people just, you know, build the product and it takes somewhat between three to eight or, you know, one year, three to eight months or one year. And then they go to product hunt or they go to LinkedIn and say, hey, that's my product. And this approach doesn't work because people don't know you. 
of course it works if you have like marketing budgets, if you are VC funded, if you have millions, you can build your product and then start marketing. But in bootstrap world, this is really bad way. So build your audience, build in public, validate your idea, validate your value proposition, and only then start building your product and purchase a domain name. That's really, really good advice. So building in public, getting that feedback. And I think a lot of times you can even validate the idea. Exactly. Um, even before you ever write a line of code. Yeah. And so sometimes that, that may mean that you don't write the application, you don't build what you were thinking, or you build something different based on the market feedback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You need you need the market, as you said. Without market, your product will fail, right? And you can sell everything to existing market, hungry market. So before building a line of code, get this feedback, ask people, and you can pivot really fast. You don't need to spend six months into building and then pivot your product idea. You do this quite fast and frequently and in front of your uh, interested audience. So. So how do you know when you do get feedback from the market, how do you know what to listen to or what to ignore? Uh, that's a good question. I have kind of a system and I, I share this system in the book, how to validate idea and how to listen to market. But if, to put it simply, uh, you speak with people who are strugglers, who experience the problem and the pain that you're trying to solve. And they need to uh, go through a list of questions. There are seven questions where you walk them through your value proposition and throw through your product idea. And they rate this idea uh, on the sc like scoring system from zero to 10 or from one to five. And then you gather this feedback from these you know, people. And based on this feedback, you can adjust your value proposition, your idea, or you can verify it, which is uh, more, more, more importantly, right? So do you think it's more important in a test like that? Are you trying to prove your idea or are you trying to disprove your idea? I'm, what's the best way to go about that? I mean, if you disprove your idea. I like that answer. Yeah, because if you, yeah, if you disprove your idea, you... You either pivot this idea and start like continue searching for the right answer, or you choose completely different idea and you validate this idea again. So basically what I'm saying is you don't build a product before you validated this idea. And if you validated this idea, you can even pre-sale during these interviews. I mean, if you see that person is really interested and if you hear words like, yes, I really want this, Hey, when it when it's ready, how how can I purchase? How can I buy this? You can pre-sale and say, hey, like if you want, I will give you 50% discount. And you will be the first client, you will be the first who will use this, and you'll use this for six months without you know any further payments. So pre-sales is the ultimate validation of your idea and value proposition. I think that's really important because it's one thing to have uh, an MVP and, and it's another to really have something that I would say is a, a, a MSP, like a minimum sellable product. Because lots of people say, yeah, that's valuable. I like that. None of that really matters unless they're going to spend money to buy it. Yeah, yeah. And people, people say usually something like, uh, yes, I can uh, think of a, you know, of a way 
some friend will use this. That means no, it's just friendly no. <laughs> yeah. If someone tells you, I need this, that's validation. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a friendly way to say no. Yeah, I wouldn't use it, but somebody else would. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's or, a no, I love that. Yeah, I can think of a way to implement these, like, you know, these polite answers. <laughs> So what is something that you would tell somebody who's you know, growing a company, you know, as you're, you're talking about the book, you know, 500 to, to 50K uh, in uh, you know, MRR, uh, what, somebody along that path, you know, what advice would you give them in, in moving forward and scaling their business? What things should they be thinking about? What's most important? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so what I hear from other founders, if you build something that already generates like 3k month just keep doing what you do double down on what what's working if you are just starting like you are 0.0 just start like start building these products start searching for ideas start validating these ideas start building products uh, some founders they accept the the challenge when you build uh, 12 products in 12 months and out of these 12 products, some will, you know, some will do the, the, the thing. So some will succeed. I, I don't really advise to do that unless you can validate your idea real fast, like in, you know, one, two days sure. and then build your product, your MVP real fast. But if you can validate and build 11, 12 products in one year, that will be very good. And it will be very good to, to your personal brand and online brand because you built in public. So so how do we know if a product is going to be successful or not? We want to validate the idea, but then how do you know when you have product market fit? Cool question. <laughs> That's a really great question. Uh, and one founder said to me that product market fit is your, when your profitability is growing month to month. So if you don't have profits, that means you don't have business, right? And when you bootstrap, having profits is simple. Like it's, must, it's much more simple than when you are VC-backed. Because when you are VC-backed, you have revenues and probably you won't be profitable for quite some time, like a few years. But when you are bootstrapping, your profitability could happen like in one month after you launch. Some founders, they are profitable after one day after they launch because they build their brands and because the product is needed. So re repeatable, like recurring and growing profits are the best indication of product market fit. That makes a lot of sense. And, and those two things, revenue, growth, and profit are not mutually exclusive. You can do both. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> So, hey, Bullet, how can people contact you and learn more about Predict Online? Through my LinkedIn. LinkedIn or Twitter, it's uh, Bullet K, and you can find me on both platforms. I like it. And we'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. And what is the Predict website? Uh, it's uh, P-R-D-I-K-T slash dot C-O, predict.co. Yeah. Very good. We'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, yeah, sure, Jeff.
Well, thanks again to both of our guests, Kurt Pickler and Bulat, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Kurt Pickler at viewpoint.ai. You can also learn more about Bulat on LinkedIn at the Bulat K. And I'll let you know about the upcoming release of his book, SAS Mafia. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Please subscribe and follow us at sasfuel.com. Everyone who doesn't subscribe this week will receive a fruit cake. So please, for the love of fruit, nuts, and actual cake, please go subscribe. Well, join us next week for our conversation with one of the best SaaS operations people on the planet, Ray Reich. He is the CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. RevOps Squared enables B2B SaaS executives to make metrics-informed decisions by adding context for fundraising, board presentation, and team discussions. So it is a great conversation. Be sure to check it out next week. And until then, Happy New Year and enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. <laughs>